0: Now let's turn to the book of Ephesians, and we'll read uh, from chapter 1, the first 14 verses. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which he made us accepted in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself. Then the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until the redemption of the purchased possession, to the praise of his glory. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our text this morning is uh, verses 7 uh, through 14. That's eight verses. And uh, they're rather uh, large or long uh, verses. And they're comprised actually of only three sentences. And that means that uh these sentences are are rather complicated in their structure. And it might uh raise questions in our minds as to how does everything really fit together and uh what's it all about? Well, I trust we can all recognize that these verses continue uh, with the worship-full and praise-filled themes that we considered already from verses 1 through 6, where we're uh, called to bless God for the wonders of His grace, uh, the riches of His grace as we read it in uh, verse 7 with respect to the forgiveness of sins. And we read also in our text this uh, morning that God's saving purpose is to the the praise of His glory. In verse 6 we read that this wondrous work of God rooted in eternity and uh, being carried out in Christ is to the praise of the glory of His grace. And then we read in verse 12, and again, in verse 14, that it is to the praise of his glory. And that in itself is most important and it's very helpful because it it gives us kind of a unifying theme uh, for our text. This passage makes clear that it's God's glory uh, that is revealed in Christ. And that's a theme that is great enough and and on the other hand, it's also simple enough to to kind of capture the heart of this message. But then under that great theme, there are also three clear and big ideas that kind of flesh out uh, this theme for us. And our outline kind of follows those big ideas that are found in our text. Uh, it's God's plan that is given great prominence throughout these verses. And then there is a wonderful description of our possessions that we have in Christ. And then we consider that indeed it is all to the praise of God. And so we want to begin by considering how this passage proclaims God's plan. Now, Christians know, or they certainly ought to know, that indeed nothing happens by chance. That there is nothing random in uh, the world, in the universe, that uh, nothing is uh, without purpose, God's purpose. And nothing is outside of God's control. Now that's a, a comprehensive uh, statement of God's sovereignty. But we've, we find such a statement also in our text this morning that makes abundantly clear that God's plan indeed is all... Inclusive. It, it's all embracing. It, it's, it's comprehensive. It includes everything. You hear that in verse 11, which says, uh, we have obtained an inheritance in Him being predestined. And then this statement here, according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. Predestination in verse 11, is the focus? That's what's being referred to specifically. But we're given to see that that predestination—that is God's will by which He predestined uh, us as believers unto life—it's like a subset of His vast, all-embracing, comprehensive plan that includes absolutely everything. And we notice that there are also different words that are used in this passage to describe God's uh, rule or God's plan. Verse 11 also speaks of God's will. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. And and, and the language of God's will confronts us directly with, with his sovereignty. He is an absolute Universal King, and that means that what he decides goes. It means that he determines everything he does what he wants in heaven and on earth. Nebuchadnezzar was brought to confess that in a uh, wonderful language in chapter uh, four after he had uh, been humbled and came to grips with God's absolute sovereign power over the greatest monarch on earth at the time and he came to confess that God's kingdom is from generation to generation all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing he does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth no one can restrain his hand or say to him what have you done God is absolutely sovereign and he's unaccountable to anyone. He does what he wants and there's no stopping him. He does what he wants, not by any kinds of reasons or restraints that exist outside of himself. We hear that in verse 9, where it says that his will is according to what he purposes in himself. It's not by force of influence from without. It's according to what he chooses. In fact, that verse 9 alerts us to another very important word when it comes down to understanding the Bible's teaching about God's sovereign rule and his comprehensive plan. It includes his purpose. And it means that God's will is always according to specific aims and goals. It's not It's not like our wills, right? We often will or make choices according to our passing moods. We're under the influence of this or that consideration and we decide to do something and later on in the day we decide, no, we're not going to do that after all. God's will is not according to passing moods or changing circumstances that alter His mind. He is unchangeable in that sense. He works His will. In Isaiah chapter 46, uh, we read that in uh, verse 9 and 10. I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. And actually, this verse uh, calls our attention to some other words that are important in understanding. Uh, God's will, also found in our text. Verse 9 or 10 of Isaiah 46 speaks of God's counsel. God's plan includes all the details. It includes all the means that he devises in order to reach his goal and achieve his purpose. And they reflect his internal counsel, his infinite wisdom. He works all things, and he works all things according to the counsel of his own will. You see, brothers and sisters, we are confronted with the reality of the fact that God's plan determines, defines a reality that none can avoid or none can escape. And how basic this is to a God-centered worldview. And how rebellious it is to fight against it. And how sad it is. And how futile it is for man to think that it's his will and his desires and his choices that can determine reality. That's the modern mind, more and more. It's man's opinions. Man's desires and choices that determine reality. And that madness has even reached to such things as male and female. Basic definitions of humanity. Things that are established by God's will, established by the creation order that reflect His determinations of how things are. And to rebel against that is to fight against God. It's it's to put oneself on a collision course with facts that are true and that are good. And it's a collision course, not with some universal cosmic principles or scientific realities, but it's a collision course with a divine person whose will and purpose and counsel determines what is real and true. And to fight against God is futile. It will not turn out well. It never does. It doesn't work. As well as being rebellious, as well as, in a sense, defining the very essence of sin in which Satan tempted Eve, in effect, to be God to herself and make up her own mind. And put God's will and God's word under the test of her own scrutiny and judgment to decide for herself. God's plan is comprehensive. And God's plan is Christ-centered. This passage makes reference to God's absolute will. And it's important, but the context doesn't lead us to focus exclusively on that. Because this passage is about God's gracious, saving will in Christ Jesus. God's will includes everything, but it also appears that the language also that we have in our text of God's good pleasure or the good pleasure of His will especially describes His plans for His beloved Son and His plans for what He would do by Him having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will, according to what God delights to accomplish through his beloved Son. Similar language is found in verse 9, having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in himself. And that good pleasure is distra- described then in verse 10, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. God's plan is to gather together all things in Christ or to bring all things together under one head. If our passage is rendered and understood in that way, that would connect us particularly also with what's said later in this chapter where it speaks of Christ being raised from the dead and seated at God's right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and he made him head and gave him to be head over all things uh, to the church. That's a description of absolute rule that extends over things in heaven and on earth. And they're brought together under his sovereign headship. But we also find similar language in the book of Colossians. And it's useful to know that 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 the book of Colossians, which is also a prison epistle of Paul, follows a very similar structure as the book of Ephesians. And it, and it has very similar themes to the book of Ephesians. You might say they're sister letters. They have a lot in common. And, and one time, one book will fill out and help us appreciate what's said in another passage. And in the first chapter of Colossians, we, we have similar language. And I'm going to take the time to read, uh, from verses 15, um, through 20 of Colossians chapter 1, where it says of Christ, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence, for it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. You see, there the emphasis and I believe that's also how we should understand it in the book of Ephesians, is on Christ's rule of grace in which reconciliation and uh, unity and restoration under Christ will ultimately prevail everywhere over all. Think of the new creation. Think of the new heavens and the new earth. And this great plan of God is already underway. It's being accomplished. And so actually verse 10 in Ephesians 1 is, is introducing a great theme that we'll find throughout this letter. One of unity, of reconciliation in Christ. The reference to the one family that's found in heaven and on earth in chapter 3. The exposition of the unity that God achieves in Christ between Jew and Gentile who are made one through the blood of the cross and united together in one church. So that's a prominent theme that's found in this book. And it's introduced here in terms of God's plan that is centered upon Jesus Christ. And that leads us to consider a third feature of this plan, and that is that it is revealed. Having made known to us the mystery of his will. Now, when we get to chapter 3, we'll say more about the, the mystery of God's will. It's not some secret esoteric knowledge that only a few can be initiated into if they're smart enough. But it refers to what was not formerly made known. It is wonderful and marvelous but the thing we need to see here is the fact that God's plan is worked out in history. Christ came in the fullness of time. That's the language there. That in the dispensation of the fullness of the times. Paul uses that language in Galatians 4. Where he says that in the fullness of times, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, made under the law. That he might redeem those who are under the law. So that's the word. That's the reference to the way God's plan is carried out in Christ. You see, before the the finished work of Jesus Christ, before His uh, incarnation, birth, and life, and suffering, and death, and resurrection, and ascension, before Christ finished this work, the gospel of salvation was neither accomplished, nor was it made known. The Holy Spirit was not poured out. The glory of Christ had not yet been revealed. Now, these Ephesian believers were blessed, richly blessed with the revelation that had now come to them. The revelation of God's plan, the revelation of God's wisdom and purpose in Christ, which is imparted to them so that they now have true wisdom and discernment of God's will, which is now made known to them. They came to understand that profound display of grace that was formerly hidden. So those are some of the features of God's vast plan. It's comprehensive, it includes everything, it's centered on Christ, and it's and it's made known. And it's important that we kind of see this big picture, because this passage is a passage of doxology, of praise and adoration for such a great God. In fact, it's only in view of this comprehensive, sovereign plan that we appreciate as we ought. The the next point that we consider, and that is our possessions. What this plan now means for us as believers. And so in a way, we're descending from the big picture to the wonder of our participation, our place in this plan as believers who are united to the Savior. And in Him, we have redemption through His blood. Redemption. That's a word that speaks of deliverance, right? God redeemed His people from Egypt. He delivered them with a mighty hand, an outstretched arm but it's it's deliverance through the payment of a price. And our text spells out that price. It's by his blood, by the blood of this great divine person, this companion in the eternal counsel of God, this one of whom we read in Colossians as the one by whom all things were made, the one for whom all things were made, the one who is before all things, the one in whom all things consist, and the one in whom all things will be gathered. And this one, this one came. This one came and was wrapped in the hidden darkness of a virgin's womb until he came forth into a world of of sin and darkness, a world in which he voluntarily entered in order to redeem us from the curse of the law, in order to walk steadily onward, steadily onward from his earliest years towards that cross of suffering where he would shed his blood as the substitute sacrifice for sinners, as the one and only way in which we have the forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins. This past week I read about a gravestone found in a cemetery. A unique gravestone because it had no name on it. There was no indication of uh, whether it was a man or a woman, or a boy or a girl, an infant child. No dates. A gravestone in which there was just... One word, forgiven. And you might think, well, that's not very helpful if you want to gain information from a cemetery. And uh, that's true. These other things like uh, how long a person lived, man or woman, those are matters of interest and importance. But when it comes down to the real question of the destiny of those bones and that person beneath the ground, is there anything more important? Is there anything more important for how you will exit this life and enter the next than what our text says about the riches of God's grace and mercy to sinners? Forgiven. The forgiveness of sins through his blood. And this exalted doxology of God's wondrous plan and grace, it comes right down to where the rubber meets the road at this point. The forgiveness of sins. It's a word on which eternal destiny hinges and it's found in Christ and the blood that he shed for us. But there's more in him. We have obtained an inheritance. Verse 11 says a destiny that was predetermined in Christ. Again, we have uh, similar language in the book of Colossians where Paul gives thanks to God for the wonder of His grace, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. Our possession in Christ by adoption involves the grace that makes us heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, the Son of God in whom we are adopted. Later on in this chapter, Paul will pray for the Ephesians, that they might know what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. He wants them to know by the illumination of the Holy Spirit something more, increasingly more, of the glory of that life that awaits us. And yet throughout this life, in a way, it remains unknowable. We can increase in our anticipation and some experience and foretaste of its glory, but in a sense it remains yet unknowable but we can know that it's ours. There's this wonderful passage, I think it's the last verse, actually, of the book of of uh, of Daniel, where uh, the Lord says to Daniel, you go your way till the end, for you shall rest and will arise to your inheritance at the end of the days. In other words, what, what the Lord had revealed to Daniel, it's not going to be accomplished for many days, but you, it's like you go to sleep And I'll wake you up at the end of days to your inheritance. What a, what a, what a wonderful word of comfort that might, that must have been to Daniel to have such a word of God directly to him personally. You will awake to your inheritance. We might think, Oh, if only I could have such a direct assurance and word from God to me. Well, you might say that we have something better than that. And our, our text describes it. In verse 13 and 14, it says that in Him, you also having believed were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. We have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who is the Holy Spirit of promise, right? Because He was promised in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit who was poured out upon the church at Pentecost in fulfillment of that promise. And the Holy Spirit who is received by everyone who believes in this message of salvation. In whom you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. In whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Notice how our text joins these two things together. It doesn't say after you believed, suggesting that there is a period of time between when you believed and then the time in which you were sealed by the Holy Spirit. As if the sealing of the Holy Spirit is a special blessing or a special gift that some some saints might receive if they have this tremendous experience giving them assurance of their salvation. Now, there have been very respectable uh uh, theologians and preachers who have taught that. I could name Thomas Goodwin and Dr. Martin Lloyd Jones among them who are some of the most, you know, they're, they're heavyweights when it comes to theology and biblical interpretation. But there are other heavyweights on their other side. And, and John Owen, I believe, textually makes the case that the seal is not a particular gift of the Holy Spirit. The seal is the Spirit himself who is given to every believer. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance? That's a correct translation. Making clear that this seal is not some special work of the Holy Spirit, though indeed the Holy Spirit does witness with our spirits that we're children of God. But it's this abiding, permanent, never forsaking gift of the Spirit Himself. Who is the guarantee? Of our inheritance. The Holy Spirit is a pledge. It's like a down payment. Of the full possession of all that Christ obtained for us. If we have that spirit of adoption. Whereby we cry to God Abba Father. We have the assurance of our eternal inheritance. And all that that involves. Including the resurrection of the body the full entry into all the purchased blessings of being children of god and that includes the resurrection of the body in fact romans 8 uh, is very clear on on this in verse uh, 23 where it says that we also who have the first fruits of the spirit even we ourselves groan within ourselves eagerly waiting for the adoption well, that doesn't refer to the fact of our adoption, but it refers to the completion and the full entry of all the privileges and the status of our adoption as children of God, which includes, he makes clear, the redemption of our body. The fullness of that salvation that Christ obtained for us. It has been purchased and it is certain, but it has not yet been realized or given in its fullness, but it will be. And our very bodies will be raised from the dead. And we know that because we're united to the Savior through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us and will never forsake us. The Spirit who will remain united to our corpses when they lie in the grave. And those bodies will be raised incorruptible. Because we belong to our Savior, Jesus Christ, in body and soul, in life and in death. God's praise. That's where it must lead us. You know that this chapter from verses 2 through 14, it's in the form of praise. From the, from the word, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, all the way to the repeated language, to the praise of the glory of his grace, to the praise of his glory. And I trust that just reading a passage like this and, and hearing, hearing it preached lifts up our souls to God with thanksgiving. But it also points us forward. It points us forward to unending praise. When God's plan reaches its consummation, all things are gathered in Christ. And we enter our inheritance holy and without blemish before him. And then we'll praise him like never before. And then that praise will never end. Then we will see the glory of God like never before. You know what the difference in the language between verse 6 and 12 and 14? Verse 6 says, To the praise of the glory of his grace. Yes, the wonder of God's grace to us is the subject of everlasting praise. But there's a sense in which verse 12 and and 14 uh, take a step back. And they even survey the bigger picture. And they say, to the praise of his glory. Yeah, God's glory is manifested in his grace. But to take in the full picture, we must see the glory of his wisdom. In his plan, we must see the glory of his triumph over sin and evil. Satan will not have the last word in Christ, Jesus. God will restore all things. And we see the glory of his victory. And we see the glory of this person by whom he does it. And we see the glory of that place that is prepared for us. What do you think about that? Doesn't that move you? Doesn't that, doesn't that move your heart to, to worship and adore this great, trying God? To praise Him? To want to praise Him better? Well, that's our glorious future. It could be that there's some here this morning who just, just have to stop at the thought that, yeah, they really ought to praise God, but maybe they're confused about themselves or maybe they, Feel guilty and unable and unmoved to praise God. It's possible that that's your mood this morning if it's not characteristic of your life and you're maybe having a bad, a bad time of things right now. God will restore your praise if you believe these reasons for it and you want to do it. But in any case, even if, even if that lack of praise and that lack of a heart of thankfulness is the result of guilt that has not been dealt with or an alienation from god that that hasn't been addressed in the way of reconciliation this passage also has really good news and that's the way to share in this wondrous grace that's proclaimed here and it's a way that's the same for everybody that's made clear also in in uh in verse Twelve and, and thirteen where, where Paul says that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory well who's who's the we there well remember that the that the gospel is to the Jew first and then to the Gentile remember that the the great commission is beginning at Jerusalem through Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth we actually even even heard it in that that call to worship this morning from from psalm uh 98. He has remembered his mercy and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. That's a Psalm that points forward to the proclamation of the gospel to all. And so Paul, as a Jew, circumcised, taught the word of God from his childhood, he's received by trusting in this one who was revealed. And then he says of these Gentiles in whom you also trusted after you heard the word of your salvation. It's like, it's, it's that simple by believing the revelation of this glorious person and savior whom God had provided by renouncing our own wills and our own wisdom and our own plans and purposes and our ability to save ourselves. And we trust in him. It's in trusting in him that we enter into the possession of all these saving gifts. And even the way, it glorifies God, doesn't it? It glorifies His grace. It's not an achievement. It's not some accomplishment that we perform. It's by trusting in Him. We become recipients of all these saving mercies and begin to praise Him as we will throughout all eternity. Amen.